0: Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dispute Network's Need to Know podcast series. If you haven't been listening so far, Need to Know delivers to your inbox short and accessible podcasts from the experts in the field on the latest developments in technology from the perspective of how they might go wrong. My name is Sam Roberts. I'm a partner in, at Cook, and & Keedon, and one of the founders of the TDN. Today, we are very lucky to have Lizzie Williams, a senior associate at Harbottle & Lewis, to talk about the intersections between smart contracts and the law. I can promise you that this is going to be a wholly unscripted conversation, and I can also promise you that it's going to be very interesting. Um, First of all, thank you, uh, Lizzie, for joining us and welcome.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: No problem. Um, Do you want to sort of first of all, um, tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, Where have you come from? Where are you going? What do you do? Where's your interest in this subject matter come from?
1: Yeah, sure. So I'm a senior associate at Harbottle and Lewis in the dispute resolution team, focusing on commercial litigation. And my uh, interest in this subject comes from three main areas. First of all, historically doing contractual disputes uh, for technology companies. And that's evolving now into disputes that are involving more innovative technology, whether that be blockchain or NFTs and things along those lines, basically. Um, and I think it's becoming increasingly common that we're having to think through the intersection between um, the law that we've had for hundreds of years and these new evolving technologies. And it's, it's just a really interesting area.
0: Yes, it certainly is. I mean, so uh, I mean, there's there's a few, a few points uh, where we could sort of dig into this uh, big subject area. Um, I guess maybe one natural place to start would be, what do you say to the um, to the? Actually, maybe a better place to start would be, what are we actually talking about? What are what are smart contracts? Smart legal contracts? Um, what does the law have to have to say about them?
1: So, smart contracts are essentially codes on a blockchain that are self executing uh, generally and the question mark would be whether they are legally enforceable or not normally if we deem them to be legal enforceable we'll call them a smart legal contract and obviously that may come down to questions of whether there was an intention to create legal relations and all sorts of things like that um, and then obviously will be jurisdictional issues too which is, which is very complex but um i think today we're, we're probably going to be focusing on smart legal contracts um and um Therefore, legally enforceable contracts and how English law deals with those um, in various ways, whether that's termination remedies and, and those sorts of things.
0: So, I mean, in theory, that could be any sort of contract that involves, you know, payment from one side to another and number of conditions are fill, filled, and, and hey presto, um, the payment is made and the the contract is is discharged.
1: Absolutely, yeah, it's essentially an algorithm.
0: Right so if i'm if i'm sort of you know in theory assuming you could put this on the blockchain renting a flat from foxtons i'm about to move out um mm-hmm. i've 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 paid i've cleaned it uh, to within an inch of its life and uh my my obligations are fulfilled and, and foxtons owes me my security deposit back yeah right yeah. so no so i guess the the dream is that we're disintermediating disintermediating lawyers and uh, the world should be a better place as a result
1: in theory
0: in theory, in theory. but we all know that can't be true <laughs> um okay so i mean what do you have to say to the to the to the people out there who say that code is law and that the 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 corner the four corners of the contract match up entirely with with the code um underpinning the the algorithm the the, the smart contract i think
1: the reality is for something to function effectively whilst in a very Simple situation, code is law may generally work for a particular contract because there may be very few things to go wrong, very few variables. The more complicated things get, um, the harder it is for a programmer to anticipate every scenario and deal with it. And that's when precisely the uh, common law principles to do with con- interpretation and things like that implied terms that's why they are so useful. Um, and those are precisely the sorts of contracts where we're going to be needing to rely on those principles more and more, uh, the more complicated they are, because I think it's just simply impossible for, for a programmer to anticipate every scenario. Um, so unless, um, you know, the, the parties try to you know expressly exclude um, the application of, of those other provisions, those other principles, then I think we're going to be seeing the interconnection and um, Contracts, which are essentially hybrids of code and natural language and common law and statute, you know, be yeah. increasingly recognized as a yeah. sort of a hybrid combination.
0: Yeah, that makes, I mean, that makes complete sense. Cause I mean, I suppose while it sort of might be nice in theory to think that, um, that, uh, smart contracts could just operate algorithmically and everybody should be, should live with the result. If the reality is, stepping outside of legal fictions for a minute someone's lost a lot of money because the algorithm has behaved in a way that's unexpected sorry there's police car or something going on behind me perils of living in london um if the if the algorithm has executed in a way which has genuinely been unexpected and someone is nursing a huge loss no one's really going to expect the the person who's lost all of that money to just sort of take that lying down are they
1: absolutely and the greater um the value of these transactions the more likely it is that people are going to want to fight what they feel they're entitled to they're going to say that there was a bug in the code which they weren't aware of they're going to say they were it was misrepresented precisely what the code was, would do um they might say that they were under a mis, you know under illusions or mistaken assumptions as to what was going to happen um and absolutely there's I mean the greater the value of the contracts the more likely it is people are going to be using these um historic legal principles to to challenge what's happened to them um so i i highly doubt that everybody's just going to accept what happens come what may even if a scammer comes along and exploits a piece of code i'm pretty sure people are going to try and challenge it however they can
0: yeah um because that's how people are um <laughs> Um, So, I mean, I I suppose that's sort of a natural point to talk about the flash loan attacks that we were uh, sort of exchanging emails about and and discussing a couple of weeks ago. Um, So these are um, events that happened. I think think it also happened more recently. But um, first, I think, occurred about two years ago um, involving some use and abuse of, uh, of the Ethereum blockchain and um and uh and and on-chain smart contracts um do you want to sort of explain a little bit um because I, I don't i feel like these didn't get quite enough um coverage and press uh, certainly in the legal press um when they happen but i do i do find them very fascinating and um particularly the ramifications um uh for you know potential claims in the future do you want to sort of tell us a little bit about what happened and um yeah, sure. how it happened?
1: I think there's sort of variations on the scam, but mm. I think the general position is so a flash loan is an uncollateralized loan where, as part of the smart contract that gives effect to that loan, um you also pay that amount back. Um, so it's safe from a lender's perspective. And then for a borrower's perspective, often due to fluctuations in value, you manage to make some money. Okay, um, so I'm
0: I'm if I'm if I'm sort of engaging in a flash loan, if I'm lending. Or borrowing in a flash loan the idea is that i'm lending that ethereum or whatever the cryptocurrency is and also receiving it back within the same transaction yeah so yeah. what where's the sort of upside for for me and why am i doing that why does this exist so for, for
1: the borrower
0: you're saying or the lender yeah i mean am i just sort of arbitraging on like incredibly uh short-term price fluctuations
1: that's my understanding yeah
0: right yeah okay
1: <laughs> um and i think that you know, that is, there's a very common transactions. But what's happened is, because um, scammers have worked our way to exploit the, the protocols, essentially, so they'll be analysing precisely how a particular smart or protocol works. And they'll be saying, well, if we can do this many transactions in a very short space of time, we're going to affect the liquidity in the market. And then that's going to distort prices. And we can make a really big killing mm. financially um, by doing that. So... Mm it almost goes back to the coder's law question is on one view, they are just doing a lot of transactions using the code. yeah. Um, And in that sense, you could say, well, what's unlawful about that? They're just being very clever about how they use the code. They're doing it in a way which perhaps wasn't intended, but, but they are just, you know, they're just um entering into smart contracts that, you know, everybody knows what the terms are. Um
0: Yeah. I mean, I suppose there's a, pretty interesting distinction maybe to be drawn there between um so i suppose if you're um what you call the attacker the scammer whoever it is Mm. um these are people because they they happen in such a short space of time whoever these attackers are know precisely what they're doing because it happens you know within within seconds mm. so this isn't the sort of like opportunistic thing that you know you've entered into this loan and you think hey i i you know realize a few months later how you can make a quick buck out of this this is sort of a very calculated thing mm. and some of these attacks involve um manipulation so there's one um i think famous one a couple of years ago against i can never remember the name of the exchange is it bzx I think that's right. It probably sounds cooler with an American pronunciation. BZX, yeah, that does sound better, doesn't it? Um so um and, and what the attacker did was they they sort of exploited a um a price feed um into the exchange relating to a I think it was a US dollar stablecoin making the stablecoin um appear to be worth I think it was twice as much as it was actually worth for just the tiniest fraction of se- of a second um and 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 capitalized on that in sort of repaying the original loan which you know is fascinating and hats off pretty clever but if you were manipulating a currency market you'd go to jail
1: you could yeah and there's obviously a place for financial regulation um and and you know other areas of law uh, the criminal law will no doubt be looking at this and working out what to do with it and i suppose it will depend on a particular case whether somebody is manipulating something manipulating an input into the protocol deliberately in a sort of subversive way or if they're doing something from within the scope of the protocol which perhaps may be harder to demonstrate as some way in some way illegal or unlawful it may depend on the particular situation um but looking at it from sort of pure commercial dispute common law angle um i suppose we would be scratching our heads and thinking is there a unilateral mistake there? Uh, How can we try and use the tools available to us to try and um, get a remedy in that situation if you're the person that loses out as a result of these transactions? Mm -hmm. Um, And that could potentially be quite difficult because you may know exactly the terms of the smart contract you're entering into um, and you may not have been misled as to that. You may just not realize there's some weaknesses in it in the way Mm -hmm. that it's programmed. So so it could be quite difficult in a sort of Mm. commercial setting as opposed to a regulatory or criminal setting, potentially.
0: Um, You mentioned mistake, um, and this may be a sort of good jumping off point to discuss um, one of the points we were discussing a little while ago was the B2C2 limited and coin decision in Singapore. Um, And there was some consideration there in terms of how mistake works in the context of um, algorithmic decision making. Do you want to sort of tell us a little bit about that and whether that sort of principle could be applied to mistakes on um, in, in smart legal contracts?
1: Yeah, sure. So in that case, uh, BTC2 traded on a platform um, and Coin operated a cryptocurrency exchange platform. And essentially, due to an oversight, the algorithm couldn't access the external market data and the algorithm functioned in an unexpected way. Um, That meant that the currency exchange cancelled the contracts and the people that had benefited from those contracts tried to soon say, wait a minute, we're entitled to those monies. Um, And the question was whether there was a... Well, there were lots of questions, but one of the key questions questions was whether there was a unilateral mistake because, um, you know, the parties had entered into that contract thinking that everything was going to operate in a certain way, um, and it didn't. Um, And the question that they had to consider was how do you apply the common law, which is developed on mistake, to a situation where the code is being formed by algorithms created by two programmers rather than you know people on the trading floor mm-hmm. or in a normal commercial transaction um and the way the court dealt with it um in the court of appeal um was that they said it was essentially a question of whether when programming the programmer had actual or constructive knowledge of the fact that the contract would only be accepted um by mistake And they were trying to take advantage of that so that had to be within the programmer's knowledge way back at the beginning prior to the transaction potentially being contemplated by the person that accepted Mm. uh, the terms Um, and there were questions about the timing of that knowledge and and what knowledge had to be proven But, but that was a way of the court quite pragmatically thinking how can we apply these traditional principles in the setting and, and that's how they did it mm-hmm. i mean in the facts of that particular case there was no evidence to suggest the program did have in the programmer sorry did have any intention um to exploit anybody or take advantage of somebody's misunderstanding they just programmed it in the way they programmed it with various safety mechanisms mm-hmm. and various um backup um inputs in the case that the exchange malfunctioned and in this particular case it happened to have Um, an unexpected outcome but they just couldn't prove the relevant intention there and i think um i think it may be um on one level easier in the flash loan scenario to prove the relevant intention because in that scenario it looks like there's deliberate attacks which is what you were saying yeah but i still think that we may come up against the point that there has to be a a misunderstanding generally as to the terms of the contract on the other on the other party's side, which may be difficult to demonstrate, even if there is very malicious intention, yeah, on one side. So, but you know that this is precisely the sorts of scenarios where the court's going to have to consider whether there's potential for incremental development principles, yeah. um, in order to make sure that we have appropriate remedies in, in these sorts of situations.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking pragmatically. I suppose if you're um, if you're an exchange and you have, uh, you know, you've developed bespoke software in house. Um, you can go and get that witness and put him on the stand or her on the stand and and, and um, get some evidence. But if you're just relying on um, sort of standard form protocols which have you know been written by programmers and are standard across the entire industry. And what you've got in, in, in terms of contractual counterparties is you know people who have nothing to do with the programmer, then presumably you're looking if you are going to try and bring a mistake claim. You're looking to something else, uh, someone else's subjective state of knowledge um, as to that mistake, other than the original programmer. I guess. Yeah,
1: which would which would be, um, yeah. I mean, depending on the facts, it could be anybody involved in the transaction. I guess. Mm. Um, and another point that's come up in in some of uh, the papers I've read is is to do with what happens when there's a group of programmers
0: that's not
1: just one individual, and how do you sort of deem them to have some collective yeah. intent or knowledge? Uh, so it really gets quite difficult and convoluted very quickly, um, depending on the particular situation, Absolutely.
0: I, I also saw a BBC headline the other day. Um, obviously, I didn't read the article because my, my news comes exclusively from reading five-word headlines rather than the actual <laughs> article, but um, th- that um, computer code can now write computer code. Yes. so, I think I, so how so, does yeah. how does that work then where are you I mean <laughs> it gets more and more obscure doesn't it yeah how many yeah.
1: rows do you go back before you find a person mm.
0: basically
1: yeah. I think it's probably the question um, but it's going to yeah. get more and more difficult to show the requisite or, level of or control. are
0: we just going to have to grant full rights and obligations to to software and computers I mean that may be just maybe, let them
1: take charge <laughs> where we end up yeah <laughs>
0: I, for one, welcome our new computer overlords. <laughs> uh, sorry, Geeky Simpsons reference there. Um, yeah, okay. So um, I suppose the next sort of question is where does all of this end up? If you are, if it's, let's say, for example, that you're able to bring a mistake claim or maybe you could have an implied term in the, in the smart legal contract or... Uh, misrepresentation is essentially, you know, any sort of um, any one of the, uh, the the tricks that claimant lawyer firms like to dig into in order to argue that the, uh, w- you know, the legal obligations are not strictly defined by what's in black and white, all of that good stuff, assuming that you're able to mount a claim along those lines um what sort of hurdles are you going to run into from a from a practical perspective i mean you mentioned jurisdiction a little while ago um that's obviously uh an issue uh what about you know remedies are you are are you left maybe with the risk of an empty judgment um do you want to talk a little bit about that
1: sure so i think one area that's particularly interesting is um remedies in terms of financial remedies and whether Actually, the best way of doing those is off chain so that you leave the transaction as it was on chain. But then the court um, can rectify any financial imbalance or injustice off chain by making a court order in the ordinary way. And that's that's fairly straightforward. Mm. It's slightly more complicated, I think, when you need to get into termination of performance and things like that, because you've got a smart contract. On it um and it may be immutable depending on the way the system works. There may not be an overarching controller who can edit it in any way, and you may you may be stuck with that. And I think the court's going to have to be quite creative and practical about how it gives effect to a termination um, of a contract or a decision. Um, of a contract um and i think it may be that the courts need to do um equal and opposite transactions sort of undoing the effect of the previous one
0: like um, an order for specific performance
1: essentially yeah mm-hmm. um or you might be looking at um i mean some contracts or smart legal contracts are increasingly being drafted with termination in mind. So sometimes they contain kill clauses, things like that, which are potentially open to abuse, but may enable a party to actually prevent performance continuing. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, that may be less important um, for a lot of contracts because often these smart legal contracts execute so quickly that there isn't really anything to stop in terms of ongoing performance. But sometimes there is, sometimes there's continuing performance um so um i think it's a matter of the courts just looking at what's happened what do we need to remedy here can we remedy on chain because i think preferably that would probably be the first choice for everybody involved
0: mm-hmm. but if that's
1: not possible then there's no real reason why around the edges um and in the real world as it were uh we can't make financial um orders which effectively rectify the wrongdoing
0: yeah Um, sort of behind the scenes
1: exactly I think it may just be a case of on a case-by-case basis looking practically what the best solution is um within the constraints that that the court has and the constraints of the particular um system in question that you know that where the smart contract is is based
0: yeah I mean I suppose um this all sort of assumes that you can identify the counterparty um, as a as a you know so-called real person in the real world, um, which was you know not an issue in the B two C two case, uh, not an issue in the recent Wang and Darby case, um, but might be an issue if say the exchange we were talking about in the Flash loan attack, BZX or BZX were to try and identify and, and bring a claim against the attacker. Um, then you'd be into all sorts of, you know, your typical asset tracing headaches that you get in cases of sort of stolen cryptocurrency and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're going to come up against that and you may be trying to make applications for um, disclosure of identity against exchanges and all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Inevitably, you're going to have additional hurdles if you don't know who you're contracting with on the other side, and that increases the risk of any transaction. So there may be ways through it by those sorts of applications, but but absolutely, you could find yourself getting quite stuck, really, um, if you can't identify who you need to be going after and you can't pin them down and you can't it's- work out what's happened.
0: It's almost like lending money to people you don't know might be a bad idea.
1: It's almost like that might be right.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that absolutely shocking uh, point, um, I think that's probably our 20 minutes or so um, done um, and probably a good place to end it. Yeah. Um, Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, I found that really interesting. Um, I hope our listeners have as well. Um, And will we see you at the next uh, TDN event?
1: Yes, absolutely. (laughs)
0: Wonderful, email's going out soon, so uh, make sure you sign up. Great, thanks very much, Lizzie. Thank you. Bye. A huge thanks to Lizzie for taking part in TDN's Need to Know podcast series. If you've made it this far and are still listening, a big thanks to you as well. And if you have something interesting to say about technology and how it might go wrong, get in touch at inquiry at disputes.tech or drop me a line directly to sam.roberts at cyklaw.com. We'd love to have you on the series. See you next time.